I appreciate that song selection, and uh, I think tonight especially we're going to need it because this morning we focused on the joy of salvation and we talked about the, the need, I think, that we each have as Christians and as human beings to remember to prioritize times of joy and thanksgiving, to be joyful people, to have joy even in the midst of turmoil because there are things that we as Christians know and hope and believe in that will transcend even the darkness and the difficulties of this life. And so I think that it is extremely important for us to be able to be joyful people. However, there is another side of that. There is another uh, biblical tradition that is uh, throughout the Bible from the beginning to the end. And it is meaningful and it is deep and it is important for us to learn about and to practice as well. And that is lament. Lament is an important part of being a Christian. Lament is an important part of the biblical story. And one of the things that I want to be careful not to do when I preach a lesson like I did this morning is to convey an attitude that says it's a sin to be sad. It's not. You're allowed to be sad. If you have an accurate view of reality and of the world around you, then sadness will sometimes be a part of that. Um, I don't want to accidentally uh, convey a mindset that says, you know what, I know whatever you're going through might be hard or whatever, but just slap a smile on it and get out there, ignore reality, and you'll be fine. Uh, I don't think that's healthy, and I don't think that's biblical. And sometimes preaching about joy can end up sounding like that. It almost like it trivializes the pain because you want to ignore it just to focus on the positive side of things, where when you read the Bible and when you look at the world, there is a dark side of things. And as Christians who live in the real world, we will experience both. We will experience joy that transcends this world, but we'll also experience the darkness of the world that we're very much in and is very much a reality. Um, When we talk about things like war, there's darkness in this world, and there's bloodshed, and there's hatred, and there's violence, and those things rightfully will bring about lament. Uh, There's death in the world that we live in, and that will rightfully bring about mourning and grief and lament. Now, perhaps we will view, I think definitely, we will view grief and mourning and lament from a different perspective than those without Christ. We know that lamentation and mourning is not the end of our story, but it is a part of our journey. And so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to talk about that part of our journey. Remember the Beatitudes where Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Like Jesus sees mourning as a very real part of the world in which we live. In fact, Jesus himself experiences it. Jesus laments. Um, when you, I mean, you see it a number of times in the Bible. You see a lot of the second half of the Gospel of John. Throughout John, there's this uh, discussion about the hour. You know, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. Then when you get to like near the end of, uh, uh, right before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, it says his hour has come. And then if you look at the emotional state of Jesus from that point forward, it will have these repeated phrases like, and he was deeply troubled within him. Uh, and, and it's interesting because he is experiencing that trouble, and it says it several times, but he says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And it's like he wants to take the sorrow that they're feeling, but, but make it his own because he's already going through that. Uh, he does tell them that they will have sorrow, though. 
uh, we'll talk about this verse as we bring our lesson to a close, but he talks about the fact that sorrowful things are happening, and they will experience that. That's, that's going to be part of this journey, just like I believe it's part of ours. If you read through the Bible, you see that Jesus laments. In, in the end of Matthew 23, when he looks at Jerusalem, and he knows what's about to happen to him, and he knows that they are the ones who have stoned the, killed the prophets and stoned those sent to her, he can't help but say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I have wanted to, to put you under my wings the way a, a mother hen does with her chicks. It's like, I've wanted to care for you. I've wanted to be a, a protective figure over you. And yet you have rejected me and the temple is going to be destroyed. Your house will be left desolate. Like Jesus sees what is happening to Jerusalem, a place that he loves. And he knows that his preaching isn't going to stop it. He's going to warn them. In fact, he very explicitly in the next chapter tells them exactly what's going to happen. And they still go through with rejecting him and they still continue on the same path that they have been on. Sometimes that's what lament is. Lament is when you see that unstoppable force and and you want to get in the way. You want to stop it. You want to cause a change. Yet there are some things in this life that we are helpless to change. And so what do you do? You you can't necessarily stop. I can't go stop a war. I can't stop uh, some of the hardships that people face in this life. I can't stop death. But what I can do is I can voice my feelings about it. Uh, I can voice my protest against it. I can voice uh, the way things should be. And I can voice those things to a God who I know hears and loves. When you look at the book of Psalms, uh, there are more lament psalms than any other kind of psalms. In fact, it's estimated about 65 of them are psalms of lament. That that means they're psalms uh, about sorrow, and they are psalms that are uh, complaints, some people say, is, you know, lament or complaint uh, is another word that's used. But it's looking at the world, whether it is uh, looking at the sinful state of man or looking at enemies or, or some uh, uh, unfavorable condition that someone is facing, and calling out to God and, and because of that. Some of the laments uh, can be classified as like individual. There's something that a person is experiencing. Some of them are communal laments, which again, if we talk about this morning, the, the, the value of coming together for celebration, coming together to remember and to enjoy important moments. There are also times to come together and to lament. That, that's less common. We don't like to do that. If we want to get together, we want it to be a happy thing. But if you only come together for the happy things, that leaves people alone through the sad things. And sometimes weeping together and lamenting together and mourning together and praying together is just as important a part of being family than the more pleasant celebration together. Uh, uh, but you read through and you see all of these types of, of, of laments that the whole range of human experience can be felt through the Psalms. And sometimes as you're reading them, you'll see that, you know, that this Psalm of lament, maybe I'm not going through something so sorrowful right now, but I always think that they're, they're valuable because they are a reminder that It's not actually only about you, but there are other people as well. And there very well may be people who are going through that. And so the Psalms of Lament can connect to us, but they can also remind us to care deeply about others who are going through those hardships. Lament opens our horizons to where we can experience and we can appreciate and we can reach out to others in the times of their sorrow as well. 
But I do think it's important to, to clarify, lament is not just sorrow when you read it in the Bible. Lament isn't the same as just uh, sadness, because sorrow and sadness, apart from Christ, uh, can take a lot of different forms than sorrow and sadness the way it's presented as lament in the Bible. Uh, It can turn into bitterness. It can turn into hatred of man. It can turn into a rejection of God. And lament, I think, toes the line of not rejecting God, but also voicing displeasure with God. That, that, that's a real part of this world sometimes because, because we know there is a God and that puts in our minds the idea that there can be perfection. And when we look at the world and we see that it is out of tune, it's like we know what the tune should be and we hear it out of tune. And so we go to God and we say, why? Like, why? You can fix this. And sometimes you feel that. It's like you are omnipotent and all-powerful and all-good and you could fix this. Please do it. Why is it not fixed? Like, like I can't fix this, but you can. And, and that's, that's the voice of lament, that struggle within you when you think, God can do this. I want him to do this. Please do this. Why have you not done this? That's, that doesn't, you don't always have an answer to that, but you have lament in response to that. Lament is, is living in that uncomfortable zone and reaching out to God there. And reaching out to God there is such an important thing to do. Because when you don't lament, you end up, instead of reaching out to God with your frustration, with your honest displeasure, what often happens instead is we turn in silence away from God. Um, God would rather you be brutally honest with him than silently walk away from him. Because I'll promise you this, there's nothing you can say to God that he can't handle. There's nothing you can say to God that he doesn't already know you're experiencing. You're not going to shock him or surprise him. Uh, when you read through some of the Psalms, when you read through Job, Job says some things. The Psalms say some things that, uh, honestly, even though I'm telling you you're allowed to do this, <laughs> I still feel uncomfortable with it because sometimes they take it kind of far. And, uh, and I think, wow, you know, that's, where's your reverence? But lament, I think, allows for complete in brutal honesty before God. That, that's an essential part of it. And so that's one of the ways that lament is different than just sorrow. Lament is when faith and sorrow meet together and point you towards God. You might not understand God. You might not have an answer from God, or at least not how you want it to be. But at least you pointed the direction of the God you believe hears. And lament is your chance to get an audience with all of your displeasure before God. A God who hears and a God who cares. Um, We can't always stop the pain and the madness of this world. We can't always stop the pain and the madness in our lives. We want to stand against it. We sometimes are helpless to do anything about it. But we do have, through lament, an opportunity to give voice to that displeasure, to give voice to that pain, so that we don't suffer in silence. I want to mention a couple of ways that we can practically practice repent, or or practice lament, uh, that might be helpful uh, as you uh, go through life and you think of, all right, well, what what will this actually look like if I put this into into practice? And one thing that I would suggest uh, that we all do 
is read through some of the psalms. Read through the lament psalms. Read through psalms where, uh, I mean, I would say read through all of the psalms because as you do that, lament will become a regular part of your day and of your vocabulary and of your prayer life. If you read through the psalms and pray through the psalms, then you'll get to uh, see inspired lament taking place regularly throughout your day or throughout your life. And when that happens, again, Sometimes it'll hit you right where you feel it, and it will meet you right where you are. But then there are other times that it will remind you about others who are going through difficulties, and it may remind you to pray for them, to reach out to them, uh, to be a source of, of comfort and encouragement to them. But reading through the Psalms, reading through the Book of Lamentations, we're actually going to do some of that here in just a minute. But reading through the Book of Lamentations, I mean, that's what lament is. It's, the Lamentations is a, is a collection of lament. Uh, and it, we have a whole book in the Bible named after it. Uh, it shows you it's kind of an important thing to do. But read through Lamentations. And one of the things that's beautiful uh, about, so Lamentations, we'll talk about it here in a minute, but it is written largely in response to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Babylonians. And it's the lament that is taking place uh, in response to those events. And one of the things that I, I appreciate about the biblical authors is they take an experience like the exile. And as you read through biblical literature from that point forward, or you even go backwards and you read about uh, slavery in Egypt, what you'll see is that those sad moments, those dark moments in Israel's history, they find voice over and over again as new historical circumstances arise. So what I mean is, you might think, oh, well, the slavery in Egypt, that happened a long time ago with Moses, that story's done. But when you read through the prophets, they see that story live on as new enemies arise. They see that story live on through the Babylonian deportation and exile and destruction of Jerusalem. They see that story live on when Antiochus, uh, the fourth Epiphanes, destroys Jerusalem. You see that story live on when Jesus discusses the destruction of Jerusalem. And he'll, he'll use some of the language of those other events to describe this event. And what that means to me is that there is biblical grounding for reading a passage, say, about the destruction of Jerusalem and the sorrow there, but then borrowing the language of that sorrow to meet new situations as they arrive, even difficulties that arise in your own life. You can learn from their sorrow in that event, and you can find expression of it in your own life facing a new event, facing whatever troubles you. And so we're going we're gonna to read through some of the, lament, uh, the, the lamentations, but Reading through them as a part of your life, along with the lament psalms, is a way you can, you can literally practice lament and make that a part of your life. I would say also reading other lamentations throughout history. Laments that have been uh, written or experienced by others uh, who have gone through hardships and hard times. Secondly, I would say practice praying lamentation. Practice prayers where you voice your honest displeasures about the world around you to a God who hears you. Don't be afraid to talk to God when you're sorrowful. Don't think that you always have to put on a happy face if you're going to talk to God. Many people in the Bible talk to God through and with their hardships, and God still hears them. Um, so practice prayers like that. Make that a part of your life as well. Um, you, Jesus, while on the cross, his final words in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark uh, before the resurrection, his final words uh, of, his, of his life before the resurrection are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
that, that's a prayer of lament. And it's, it's a question that's actually left unanswered. Uh, it, it, that section, like, like you don't get a voice that comes out of heaven with a word of comfort. And so often that's how like our prayers of lament are met. He says that and then he dies. Now that comes from Psalm 22. And as you read through Psalm 22, that seems to be what the psalmist is experiencing. By the end of the psalm, you see the, the brighter end to the story. You see the very reign in the kingdom of God being established. And as you read through Matthew, from that verse to the end of the book, you have the resurrection. You see that same story unfold where the reign of God is taking place. So you do see an answer as you look throughout. But Jesus, while on the cross, used the language of lament, expressed that lament, and died with lament. Um, that's an important thing for us to remember uh, as a part of our lives as well. And uh, I would also suggest uh, a third thing to do, reading lament, praying lament, would be to write your own laments. Um, sometimes it is helpful to take the time to write down, and I mean, when you do it that way, you think more, I think, about each word that you're using. You get your hand involved. You get your mind. You get different parts of, of yourself involved in the writing process. And writing down your laments can be a helpful thing. You can also write down. Uh, when you read through a lot of the Psalms of Lament, you'll notice that a lot of them do end, actually, with words or expressions of trust in God, even when they don't get their answers. And I think that's an important part as well. Trust petition, like asking God to resolve it, or even thanksgiving sometimes. Uh, even thanksgiving in spite of not having the answers you want. You can make that a part of the lament as well, but don't be afraid to give voice to what's really going on within. God wants to hear it. He would rather you go to him than silently walk away from him. Reading lament, praying lament, and writing lament are all ways uh, that we can go about doing that. But I want you to turn with me now to that book that I just mentioned, uh, Lamentations. Lamentations, we're going to talk about this for just a minute, and we're going to read through one of the laments in the book of Lamentations. Um, so Lamentations is a book that we don't spend a ton of time uh, preaching on. Uh, we don't, it's, it's more neglected than most other books. Uh, even, I mean, if I were to look at my own history of sermons, Lamentations would probably be one of the least preached on. Uh, but one of the only verses we, we tend to know from Lamentations is uh, in chapter 3, um, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Beautiful verse. We sing that verse. Notice like that verse is this bright spot in the book of Lamentations. It doesn't sound like a lot of the other verses. I think that makes it important because it's like even through the lament, he still holds on to the fact that I know, God, you are good. I know your steadfast love never ceases. I know your mercies come regularly. So, so he's, it's not a rejection of the goodness of God, but it is interesting that like we find the one positive verse and then we just don't have much to do with the whole rest of the book because we like to focus on the things that make us feel good. And if you read Lamentations, it won't always make you feel good. It's kind of dark in some places. Um, we're going to read the last chapter of Lamentations. We won't have a ton of comments on it, maybe just a couple things here and there. But the thing that's fascinating about the last chapter of Lamentations is that it, 
it diverges from the rest of the book in some interesting ways that you might not catch just reading it in English. Uh, so the La- book of Lamentations, it's five di- each, there's five chapters, and each chapter is a different lamentation. Like it's a different song. Uh, and so uh, you, you know, it's kind of like if you read the first five psalms, you're reading five different psalms. These are five different laments, and they're put together. Now the first four of them all have a very similar pattern or structure in Hebrew. Um, They are called acrostics. Some of the Psalms are like this. What that means is every verse begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So like, uh, you know, in English we have A, B, C, D. It would be like the first verse begins with an A, the next begins with a B, the next a C, the next a D, and then it goes on. It does that, only it does it with the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So guess how many verses are in uh, chapter 1? 22 verses. Uh, If you look at chapter 2, it's 22 verses. If you look at chapter 4, it's 22 verses. Now chapter 3 is a little bit different because it is 66 verses. Now, uh, what's 22 times 3? Uh, it's 66. Chapter uh, 3 is different because instead of each verse beginning with the next letter, it's like a, a paragraph. Uh, it goes three verses, three verses, three verses, three verses, down through the whole thing. So it's highly structured and organized and predictable. Now, one of the things that's amazing about that is the chaos of our lives that leads to lament is so different than that. It's not highly structured and organized and predictable. Usually that's what's so frustrating about it, is, is that we can't control it. Like, this is a controlled poem. It is, you can guess what's going to happen. Like, that, that structure of it is meaningful. That's true of chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And then you get to chapter 5. It does, by random chance, happen to be 22 verses, but it is not uh, an acrostic. The structure of chapter 5 is completely different than the structure of the first four. And, and I think that's intentional. I think that is like a way of showing how sometimes in life we think we could have everything under control. And then the direction we want it to go, we just lose control of it. And it goes somewhere else entirely. And, and I think the unsatisfactory ending of Lamentations just with the structure in which it's written, is significant for the unsatisfactory nature of life sometimes that leads to lament. It's like it doesn't go the way you want it to. It loses all organization. It loses all control right there at the end. What I want to do is read that final lamentation, chapter 5. And as we do so, it's going to be a prayer, and he is going to ask God— to restore us. I mean, that's going to be the main purpose of it. But what he's going to be doing is basically looking and remembering the good that things used to be and just how utterly miserable things are now. It's like things have gone completely out of control. Is this the end of our story? Is the end of our story kind of like the end of the book? Have we lost everything? Have we lost all structure? Is it just chaos now? As a matter of fact, the whole book ends with a question that's rather alarming, uh, or, or at least a statement that's rather alarming, and that it ends in an entirely unsatisfactory way. And, and so we're going to read through it and uh, try to notice some of what he says about lament. Um, chapter 5 and verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our reproach. 
Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. We have become orphans without a father. Our mothers are like widows. We have to pay for drinking water. Our wood comes to us at a price. Our pursuers are at our necks, and we are worn out. There is no rest for us. All right, so that's how he begins it. The state that they're in, they've lost all of their freedom. They've lost all the way that things used to be. He says our inheritance, which we longed for, it now belongs to foreigners and strangers. It belongs to our enemies. In fact, if I just want drinking water, I have to give them money to have it. If I just want the simple necessities of life, we don't even have that anymore on our own. That's all been robbed and taken from us. Verse 6, we have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. You know, think about who, who in Israel's story was supposed to be the one who provided bread for them. Uh, you go through the wilderness wanderings, you know, like God is the one who's supposed to be the source of bread. Well, where is God's bread? It's like, we, have, we have to go to Assyria for bread now. We have to go to Egypt for bread. He says in verse 7, our fathers sinned and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. So here what he's saying is, look, I understand punishing. Like, our fathers did bad things, and then they got punished for it. But here it is years later, and our fathers aren't even here anymore, and yet we're still in this miserable state. Now, perhaps in lament, that that can cloud you sometimes. I I don't know that lament is always the posture for best seeing reality as it is. Maybe he should have a better view of his own sinfulness. Maybe he should recognize the the sinfulness of the people around him. But sometimes in lament, it's hard to see things as they actually are. You are speaking from emotion. And I think you see here, he looks and he says, Our fathers sinned, but we're the ones who are bearing the brunt of the punishment for it. In verse 8, Slaves rule over us, and there is no one to deliver us from their hand. So who's supposed to be the great deliverer? It's God. He's the one who rescued them from Egypt. And yet what he's saying is, Egypt, we were ruled by like the powerful Egyptians. We were ruled by kings and by by masters. Here, we are in such a despicable state that we're not ruled by the top. We're ruled by the slaves at the bottom. It's like slaves are the ones who are in charge of us. We're lower even than them. And and when the Egyptians ruled us, we, we had someone who could deliver us. You deliver us. Now that we're ruled by those even at the bottom, we don't even have a deliverer anymore. Verse 9. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin has become hot as an oven because of the burning heat of famine. They ravished the women in Zion and the virgins in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung by their hands. Elders were not respected. Young men worked at the grinding mill and youths stumbled under the loads of wood. Elders are gone from the gate. Young men from their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased Our dancing has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our heads. Woe to us, for we have sinned. So here he looks at the state of things, and it's those, the elders who should be respected are now not respected. All the princes who should rule are being hung by their wrists. Women who should be respected have been ravaged by the foreigners. And you can go through and you can look at every aspect of life, whether it's young, old, male, female, place of honor, place of dishonor, everyone is suffering and miserable. And then he does mention right there at the end, woe to us for we have sinned. So I think he, towards the end, begins to recognize or at least speak more about their own individual responsibility here. But 
Also, the question is asked, how long are you going to be angry about this, though? I know that you, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's just two, verse, two chapters earlier. Like, where's, where's the forgiving, steadfast love where you'll care about us even though we're imperfect? When can we move on from that to better things? How long is misery, like, how long will it take to satisfy you? He says in verse 17, Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes are dim. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate, Foxes prowl in it. Foxes are among those wilderness animals. The wilderness in the Bible is the place where humans can't live. It's the uninhabitable lands. And it's often dark and it's scary. And sometimes there's spiritual forces of darkness out there. But also as you read through different wilderness texts, there's dangerous animals out there. And uh, foxes are consistently, and ostriches and, uh, and other animals are consistently among the wilderness animals. And I think what he's saying here is even Zion has now been turned into the wilderness. It lies desolate. The foxes prowl around. It's not a safe place for us anymore. How long is this going to last? In verse 19, that's where he, he actually starts getting to that question. You, O Lord, you rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so long? It's like, if you're going to be king forever, is, is that the length of time of our penalty? Like, you're king year in and year out. Are you going to continue to forget us? I'm begging you, don't. Remember us. Restore us. In fact, that's how we, chapter 5 and verse 1, remember us is what he says. Remember, O Lord. And then when you get to verse 21, right towards the end, his second, restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Make it like things used to be, like when things were good. Restore us and renew us. And then he ends with this thought, unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us the end of the book. Uh, Like, restore us unless you're just done with us forever. It's not a very satisfying and happy ending. Uh, That's not the the way we wanted it to turn right there at the end, where it's, but we believe, O God, that your steadfast love will ultimately win out and you will redeem us shortly or something like that. It ends with the uncertainty. And I think that that is a picture of what's also happening with the structure of Lamentations, where you have the acrostic for the first four, and then it ends by just losing all of that. Like, right here at the end, he ends with the feeling that so many of us have at the time of lament. Lament is when we don't have our answers. We don't know what God is going to do. We don't know what the future holds, and things are and look bleak. What do you do? If you can't solve the problem, what do you do? You go to God, and you lament, and you express that, and you beg for something better than that. Now, I do have good news. Uh, The story of the Bible does not end right here in chapter 5 of Lamentations. Um, I said this morning that there's reason to celebrate, and there is. On the journey, lament will be a part of it. It has to be a part of it. It's an important part of it. But lament is not the final position that we have towards God. Celebration is what will win. 
Celebration is what will ultimately rule the day. I started uh, off this lesson by mentioning the Gospel of John, how Jesus mentions that his disciples will mourn, but that will be turned into something else. Uh, Turn with me to John chapter 16 as we bring our lesson to a close. John chapter 16, I think, provides a pattern for what we will experience in this life. In John 16, I think Jesus is specifically talking about what's going to happen with him in the coming days, with his death and then his resurrection. But I think the picture you get there is often the picture of what we will experience throughout our lives and death before our ultimate and final resurrection. He says in John chapter 16, verses 20 through 22, after his disciples, they are concerned and worried about what is about to happen with Jesus, and they're just, they, they seem unwilling to ask him the question that they're all thinking. And Jesus notices that they are unwilling to ask. He says in verse 19, are you deliberating together about this, that I said, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. He gives an example. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. That's the the phrase that's used for what Jesus is about to experience. My hour has now come, talking about his death. He's likening that to a woman whose hour has come for childbirth. That's a painful, difficult, dangerous experience. He says, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, She no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take that joy away from you. Throughout this life, we're going to have moments where our hour has come. We're going to have pain. There will be grief. There will be mourning. Sometimes the end will be hard to see. Sometimes we won't have the conclusion to the matter that we want to have. Sometimes it'll be like the book of Lamentations. Um, But Jesus, after the cross, after the burial, after the darkness, did rise again. And that gives us hope that a new world is coming and a new day is coming where we will rise again. And the grief in the morning will be turned into dancing and laughter and joy. The sorrow that we experience will not win. Sorrow will lose. The lamentation will fall away. And the pain will not have the final say. Victory in Christ is what we're all awaiting. Victory in Christ is what can get us through some of the darkness that we see. The hope that, and the realization that we will be victorious and that life will win gets us through the darkness of the journey that we'll often experience. And so, this morning... We talked about joy. Be joyful. There's a lot to be joyful for. Because of the darkness that we just talked about, uh, recognize it's important to have moments of joy. Schedule them. Celebrate them. Join together with the church when we have moments of joy with one another. When we do pleasant things, when we do fun things, when we have trunk or treats and the kids are happy. Take an opportunity to be a part of those things. Because life is not all joy. And the darkness will come. And when it comes, lament. You're allowed to. But also know that lamentation isn't the end. Also know that there is a great day of victory coming. And in Christ, we'll get to share in it. If there's anyone here 
this evening who perhaps sin in your life is keeping you from having the joy that you long for. David requested of God to restore to me the joy of my salvation after his sin with Bathsheba. So often sin is one of those things that steals our joy. And that's something that today you can have washed away forevermore. You can name Jesus as the Lord of your life. You can have your sins washed away in baptism, living for him from this point forward. If you have the need, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.